We'll pray for them in just a minute. I've got my cell phone here with my list of things I'm supposed to talk about, so I don't get off track here. 
Um, yeah, it's Independence Day, isn't it? <laughs> it's first on the list. And, and I was just thinking about that today. And I know we don't do sort of the full God and country type things in our services, but uh, sacrifices were made for our freedoms, and we need to recognize that. And uh, we're so thankful for those that uh, fought in our place. And, uh, the, the concept of, 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 of dying as a sacrifice for others goes right back to the cross, how Jesus did that for us. He, he paid the ultimate sacrifice. He paid the penalty that was required for our sins. And, and, uh, and that inspired the, the sacrifices that have been made all through the ages. And we're so thankful for that freedom in Christ that, that God gave us as we celebrate the Day of Freedom today. Um, uh, just a few things going on. There's no services or activities tonight. And uh, this coming Wednesday night, um, there, there's youth activities. And we start out with WOW um, for our July uh, segment. There's uh, four, Sunday, uh, four Wednesdays in July that we'll be doing a thing called Summer Games. If you haven't registered your, your children for that, please do that. There's um, manual registrations. Uh, old school, fill it in on the piece of paper, and you can follow the, um, the link that we sent by email to, to fill that out online. And uh, it's going to be exciting. It's going to be something really good for our, our, our elementary and preschoolers to, uh, to uh, attend and connect into God's Word. We have some terrific Bible stories that they're going to explore and apply to their lives, and we're really looking forward to that. So I ho hope you'll do that. And if you want to be involved in that, I'm sure we have places to to plug you in to, uh, to help with that, okay? So uh, just check with myself or, or Miss Daisy, uh, Daisy McVay. I don't, I don't know if she's here or not or if they're vacating, but um, check with her too. Um, and if you don't know who to check with, call the church office. They'll put you through to who needs to be part of that. Okay, and also there's an opportunity to, um, to give towards furnishings for our mission house. We have... Uh, a little house over there uh, right across from the rock which is our student building and um, and we refer to it as the mission house we used to refer to it as missionary mansion that's a long time ago and there's a story behind that that I won't get into but um, the mission house has been going through renovations for the past uh, number of months and we still have probably a couple months we're kind of slow on it because it's been like a little um, as we have time to fit it into our regular schedule but um, it's getting rewired and replumbed and new fixtures and new light fixtures and several other items that have to be uh, done. And it's just got a new roof recently put on it. And um, so we have a list that has been posted on our website on things that you could donate towards or check to see what you have. And, and if, if it's a, one of the larger items, if you'll contact us first to see if it, it's a fit for what we would need for the house on the list. Uh, but if, if you would pray about a blessing, um, some of those provisions that we need for the, uh, the mission house, the, we have missionaries that come in for extended periods and stay there. So we want the house to be comfortable and, and safe and modern. And so that, that's been our goal for that. Um, so let me pray, and then uh, we'll get back into our worship uh, segment. Um, thank you guys for leading us in, in song and worship. Okay, let's pray. Father God, thank you for uh, your blessings. We're so grateful that you have um, given us freedom um, through your grace, through the, the, the 
saving work that you did on the cross, Jesus. And Father, we're thankful that um, you judge sin. We're, we're thankful that you, um, you disagree with sin. And Lord, we're so thankful that uh, you decided that you would take care of that payment. And Lord, as we, as we internalize and we trust in you as Savior, as we receive that forgiveness that you have given to us through the cross, through Jesus. Our sins are paid for and we receive eternal life through you. And so Lord, thank you. Thank you that you give us that, that hope and that, that for eternal life. And uh, Lord, I pray that you just uh, bless uh, singing, reading, and preaching of your word today. That you would be glorified and that we would have hearts to listen to your spirit and hearts to obey. Jesus, we ask this in your name. All God's kids said. Let's uh, let's stand as we continue in worship.
Father, you are so good. God, you're so gracious to us. Lord, thank you for your goodness. God, that you have, you have made the ultimate sacrifice. God, that you have brought us freedom from sin. God, freedom from death. Lord, I pray um, for Pastor Matthew as he comes and brings the word, Lord, that you will give us ears to hear, God, and hearts to understand. Um, Lord, that we will leave this building um, better equipped to be your church. God, better equipped to serve you, to love you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Y'all can be seated. One, two, check, check, one, two. Uh, we're going to be reading, our Bible reading will be Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. And seeing the multitudes, he went up the mountain. When he was seated next to his disciples, came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are, those, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they, are revi when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Thank you, sir. Well, good morning. We are going to uh, continue here from verse 11 to look at, or verse 12, excuse me. We're going to look at 13 through 16. Uh, just three verses this morning, and take a look at salt and light and what Jesus has to say uh, to us as his people. And so we, uh, several weeks ago, we looked at the first few verses of the Beatitudes and walked through those and looked at those characteristics of, of the church, of God's people, of what, uh, what we are to look like, what he does within the lives of sinful people to transform them and change them into his likeness. And that those characteristics proceed from the Holy Spirit at work within his people. And so we looked at that, and rather than going through the rest of them, we're just going to look here at 13, 14, 15, and uh, 16, and look at what Jesus says in these analogies, these two, about his people, his kingdom, his followers. All right? So... We have had the privilege of watching and hearing, I googled this morning, just looking at what, what has happened over the last year in the cancer culture situation, and just going through like top 10, who and what, and it is, it's pretty insane. The, uh, the reality of what we've seen happen uh, as somebody in fourth grade says something and gets in trouble for it and gets kicked out of like all their career and everything, and just this... This situation, and not to demean, not to belittle, I'm not trying to do that, I'm just trying to say within our world we see and we, we are very uh, well acquainted with situations of inconsistency. In church we call it hypocrisy, of 
of, a, of seeing someone who presents themselves one way, who talks about, or an organization that talks about themselves in a certain way, and then behind the scenes, uh, it's, it's been operating completely different. And so we, we've seen this, we see this all the time, and we see all this uh, in the world, and also, as we see in, in Scripture here, Jesus is talking about what happens when the church doesn't act like the church. Is it possible? Is it possible for the church not to be the church? So short answer, no, it's not. The true church is the church. There, there, is, no, there is no ability because it is God's people that God has called and joined together, and God is the one who holds them together. It is a work of God, and what God has done will not fail. God does not fail. His promises always come to fruition or are fulfilled. God is not limited by any one of us or anything that happens. The Lord is the Lord. There is none like him. And so, the church will not fail. He promises that that is not the case, but, but the effect, what, what we see, we don't see through God's lenses. We, we are finite. We only see some of what is actual and we know very clearly, very easily, that someone can say something is true about them and it not be true at all. And so, like Jesus tells us, the parable of the wheat and tares within the kingdom, the earthly kingdom of God, the expression of the spiritual kingdom of his people, there will be within us inconsistencies. There will be within the, the visual expression of the spiritual kingdom of God there will be moments and times where it is not consistent, it doesn't line up. And so, what is this a surprise for Jesus? Absolutely not. You have that one parable I mentioned, but here specifically we have Jesus' words in these short verses of the called consistency of his people. What he has called us to and set us as his people apart to be in the world around us. And those illustrations of salt and light is what he uses. And so, to kind of set up the context, Sermon on the Mount. This is a sermon that Jesus gives where he is speaking to his disciples. He is speaking to his followers, to people that have been called out from the world around them. And specifically, he is speaking to the Jewish people, Israel, who were called out generations before to be set apart as God's people. And then he is, he is speaking specifically to those who are following him, to those who believe that he is the Messiah, that he is God, and are following him and listening to him. And so he, these people he has called to enter to be in God's kingdom that he has brought about, inaugurated, and created by his blood. And so he says in 4.17 of Matthew, he says as he has been baptized and he takes up the message of John the Baptist as he is preaching of the kingdom of God, he says as he began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so several weeks ago we talked about that means it is now, it has occurred, it is here, it is imminent that Jesus has come and he has begun something that is world-changing. He has begun something that is going to eternally affect all things. He has opened up the doors to the kingdom that he is calling people to repent, to essentially change the direction of life, decision of life, and then in unison with the work of God, the fiber of who they are. And so the kingdom, the people within the kingdom, the followers of Christ, their essential nature has been changed 
by the work of the Holy Spirit, by response to His call to grace, His call to enter the kingdom and trust in Him. And so also we see in John 3, in the conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus, as he says the nature of his kingdom, the nature of entering in, is not just our decision. It's not a volitional thing. There is part of that, but it is ultimately an act of God. It is ultimately something God does by his Spirit. It says, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. God sent His Son. God did the work. God initiated. God showed up. God is the one who has done it. And He applies through faith by His Spirit this work of grace that Jesus came in order to save people that we would be saved through Him. And so, that brings us to this verse in 5.13 of Matthew. In the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus talks about, based on this reality of what He is doing, what He is doing and what His life is going to culminate to, and that He is going to give His life on the cross for those who would believe in Him. That anyone who would call upon His name would be saved and would be forgiven, and that His death would stand in their place. All right, let's read 5.13. Y'all ready? This will be quick. This is going to be fun. It says that you, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Notice his specificity. Notice how specific he is here. He says, you are the salt of the earth. The, the, the term is present reality that he is saying that this is true of you that these followers those who are following him as jesus again is speaking to those who are following him those who are depending upon him those who are trusting him that as if we are in christ that we are salt of the earth not becoming not progressing not growing into but a essential reality that is true a reality of identity. He is saying that the identity of his followers are, are salt. So what in the world does that mean? Are we salty? I know it's summer and you go outside and you get sweaty and you have salt streaks down your clothes and you're sweating. Like, is that what he means? That we just, we, we're really, these were really salty people? Like lots of salt in their body? No, no. That's not what it means. This analogy he's giving us. He's giving us this metaphor of salt. Salt. It's not a big deal anymore. It was essential. It was valuable, intensely valuable in that day. Salt was crucial. See, we have, we have the luxury of refrigeration. They did not. That's a relatively recent invention. Only about 100 years has it been hanging around to where we can preserve food for a long period of time. But this, at this day and time, salt was essential to preserve anything. For you to keep a meat or, or some item... Uh, longer than in its immediate right there as you have, you have cleaned it and prepped it and you're ready to go to eat whatever it is, for you to keep it any longer than then, you have to preserve it. And salt was an essential tool of that. That to apply salt and to cure that meat, to preserve it, to be used later was essential. And you can still do this, by the way. You, the, you can still cure meat this way. Uh, we have a, a dehydrator. 
and a funny story here, um, where we, it's a great tool, it's wonderful to be able to preserve food and dehydrate stuff, and, and it's, it's fun. Well, we, uh, this one time, it hadn't happened in a long time, but we used to uh, take deer meat, ground deer meat, and make jerky out of it. And so we had done this, dehydrated, it was great, wonderful, and we had some deer meat, pulled it out of the freezer, and uh, had a packet that was open of cure, of salt cure, and saw it, opened it up, thought, you know what, there's something not right about this, but I can't, I have no idea, it looks fine, it, the color is fine, which is probably my problem, and it, it smelled fine, but it, uh, so I went ahead with it and made some deer jerky and uh, mixed it up and stuck it in the dehydrator and we had this little tube thing squirted out in little strips and it was great. And so made it and processed it and then put it in a bag and thought, thought nothing of it. I thought, you know, that, that seasoning, maybe I did something wrong, maybe I didn't measure it wrong, I, maybe, I, I don't know, but I thought it was fine. And so um, I dismissed my, my <laughs> better judgment to, cons- to think about this, this uh, supposedly salt-cured meat, and so I went away, went to work, did whatever, and uh, Tara had gotten, my wife had gotten the bag and had eaten some of this, and had eaten quite a bit of the deer jerky I made. (laughs) She was, I about killed her. She was uh, sick for days, really, really sick. The salt apparently had lost its saltiness, or I had not measured right, or I don't know, but she was, she was deathly sick uh, from eating bad deer jerky uh, that I had made. And so you can still, you can still cure meat uh, as long as you use good salt and good cure, whatever. But salt does not change. Jesus is not telling us here that salt decays. Salt does not decay. Pure salt never changes. It doesn't burn under normal circumstances. And so what perhaps does he mean? What perhaps does Jesus mean in here if salt loses its saltiness? Well, possibly the, the Dead Sea, if you're familiar with this, the, the body of water that is very, very salty uh, that you can go and you can float in. There's so much salt dissolved in the water that it will support weight. And this salt, as you could, you could get it and evaporate out the, the water and dry it out and collect salt that way, the salt out of the Dead Sea was not pure. That oftentimes the salt would have gypsum in it that you couldn't see that was mixed in there, and so it would leach the, the true sodium out of this salt, and it could be tasteless. And so perhaps what Jesus is saying here is that salt loses its saltiness with impurities within that salt that is not pure, that has inconsistencies, that is mixed with other things, that is not truly fully salt, decays and falls away and is ineffective, perhaps. We'll get back there. But he says, if you notice, salt, it cannot be restored. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. The emphasis here is not necessarily the capability of salt, the effectiveness of salt, what salt does. The emphasis is on the inconsistency of salt, that salt is salt. Salt does not unsalt. You put salt in food, it will be salted. You can't unsalt it. You can throw it away. 
You can't fix the salt. Salt is salt. And so for salt to not behave like salt is unnatural and it makes no sense. That's what Jesus is saying. The point of what he is saying is that for something to be salt, it is salt. It doesn't stop being that way. That for something to be something, it is that. So he's saying that his people, his followers, are salt. You are salt of the earth. You are this. You are effective. You are purifying. You do something. That this is the reality of who you are as followers of Christ. And that should be clear and evident. That he's not talking about capacity, capabilities, but he's talking about that the the church, his people, his followers are to be effective in the world. There is to be an activity. There is to be something that happens that God uses His people towards, that, that changes around us. So how will salt again be effective in the future? Will it become salt again? No, He's saying that in the Greek there is no way, there is no place of purpose, that something to not be salt is to be thrown out. That is the only purpose therein. You don't re-salt something. Salt does not suddenly become salt. It is not to be, it will not change back into. God's people are different from the world around us. That's what this is boiling down to. What he is saying here is that God's people are different. Different from the earth around us. He has set apart his people. He has called and changed and made them to be effective in the world because of what he has done in his people. Not because his people are unusually capable, not because his people are unusually talented, not because followers have to be special, but because of God. See, Colossians 1, 12, 13, and 14 says this about what God has done in the lives of those who are in Christ. It says, giving thanks to God who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It is the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that is work within God's people to qualify, to change identity and spiritual reality within His people that they are different, transferred from the domain of darkness, transferred from what is common, what is natural, transferred from sin and selfishness, to the kingdom of God, into his family, to be like him. That there is an essential change in reality that God has brought about, that we in Christ are totally different. No longer the old self, no longer the old person, but by his grace qualified to be saints before him. That's good. That is some good truth, good reality of what he has done. And so, if this is true, that his people are salt of the earth, that are effective around them, to the, to the world around them, what is one place that is evident? We see this also brought up later on in Colossians, in chapter 4, 5 and 6, verses 5 and 6, that says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the, the encouragement here is to be wise with how 
his people, God's people, relate to others around them, the world around them, with outsiders who are not within the church, who are not believers, who are not in the same position before God as incorporated by his spirit into his people. So with wisdom, walk, making the best use of the time. Use the opportunities that your speech, what you say, your words, your conversation would be, would be would be seasoned with the salt, the reality of the grace of Christ would be, would be on your lips, believers, that you would use those opportunities, those relationships for the gospel, for Christ, for essential things in the lives of others around you, those who do not know Christ, that you would be that agent of change, that you would be the one who is there recognizing God's work through you to use you out to speak truth to someone. See, the identity that Christ has given His people changes our lives such that we then represent Him around us in the world around us. And so we'll go back to this, but let's continue with verses 14 and 15. Jesus then says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So again, we have this emphatic statement of identity. You are the light of the world. He's saying this is a reality, an emphasized reality, that as his followers, you are the light of the world. And so this identity statement here, he then says that a city uses a city, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. So we are in the adoption process. We are uh, heading towards the final stages of uh, bringing home Lucy's baby sister, five-year-old sister, and she is in Taiwan. And so uh, one, of the, one of the things about Taiwan that is really neat, that we really enjoy, uh, that in the times we've been there, in the city, in the capital, there is a tower called Taipei 101. And it is a massive, it is a massive tower of 1,667 feet. It is, it is giant. And so you can, I mean, you can navigate the city off of this tower. You cannot hide this thing. In the mornings, as clouds come through, it'll hide in the clouds, but you can, you can see that thing. I mean, it is, it's huge. And so as we, as you would come in, if you were coming in like the north side of town, there's a giant tunnel through a mountain. And as soon as you come out of this mountain, you're still five or six miles away uh, from the city, from the tower. You can see the thing over the hills. You can see the top of it. I mean, it's just, it's there. It cannot be hidden. And so you're lost in the city. Look for the tower. Look for Taipei 101, and you can find your way around. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. You cannot cover that tower with a blanket, and it goes away. It's there. Simple, right? That's simply what he's saying, is that you have a city, you have a town, you have something set on a hill that is there and is visible. It is there to be seen and known, and it's not to be hidden. It makes complete sense. That It's very simple what he's saying here. The same thing with a lamp. You light up a lamp. You have a lamp or a light bulb, and you have installed it. It's there. You turn it on to illuminate around you. You don't cover it up. 
if you were to build a house, you, you spend the time and the money building this thing, wiring it up, getting it all finished, and picking out light fixtures, and you spend all this time doing this and all this money doing this, and then you show up day one, you put all your, your nice bulbs in there, and you get it ready and make sure it works, and you come back with a roll of aluminum foil and you cover all the lights. That would make absolutely no sense, right? That makes zero sense. That's what Jesus means. It makes no sense. A lamp, a light, a city on a hill, a tower, these are there to be seen. These are there to be seen, to be visible, to be known, because there's a purpose within them. Notice with a lamp what he says here. You don't put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. The lamp is to scatter light, and that light benefit everyone within the house. It is to benefit everyone there within the the place, that residence, through the lamp, lighting that lamp. So what is Jesus saying? What does he mean by this? What does he mean in, in these analogies? Notice the, the focus. As he says, you are a light, you are a city. That he doesn't intend that from us emanates that we are the focus. But that we are to reflect the light of God. We are to reflect the goodness of God. We are to display him. And that that is to impact others. Remember, he, Jesus, is talking to Jewish people, the Israelites. And the Israelites that he is speaking to had a history of isolation where they sought to isolate themselves as the particular people called out and that they were different from everybody else and that they, they were set on a pedestal that no one else could rub elbows with. That instead of seeing their called outness, their set apartness as for a purpose to affect others around them, they saw themselves as to hold back and stick to themselves. What Jesus is saying is that he has called his people to impact others. The light of the world, not the light of a place, not the light of a room, of the world, everywhere. The salt of the earth, everywhere. That the impact of what he is saying is that he has called his people to impact everyone and everything in the world around us. That it is the identity of his people to be effective in the world. So, let's look at this last verse, verse 16. In the same way, connects the previous two illustrations. Connects the salt and the light. In this same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So both of these images of salt and light are for the purpose of reflection. Are for the purpose of pointing to God. That letting light shine, letting it be evident, reflecting the light of God, that that are the good works of His people would display and would point to God. That God would be the one who would receive the glory. That God would be the one that would be seen and evident and known. That here Jesus, He is talking about His disciples showing and glorifying God. 
and glorifying God in a way that presents the potential for the world around them doing the same. That we have here that may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven, these are potential words. Entailing that what he is saying is that we, his people, are to live in such a way that he has changed us to be a certain way so that the world around us would have the potential and opportunity to see God and to bring him glory. That his people are to represent God such that the world would see through us and see the Lord and that he would be exalted and that he would be glorified, our Father who is in heaven. This is the first time God is described as the Father in the Gospel of Matthew. And it's an important, it's an important name for God throughout Matthew and throughout the New Testament. This is a big change. This is a big change for Israel and a big change for how God was viewed in, in the culture and in the people. So we see Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. That God is Lord over all things. And whatever He wills and desires, He brings about. The image of God, the view of God, which not to say that this is not true, but their overarching view of God is that He is separate and completely separate and other than and therefore uninterested in. That He is grand and great and in authority, which He is, which He is grand and great and in authority. I'm not saying He's not, but the image is not of a fatherly affection. The image that they carried and that they understood God to be is not that God is interested personally as one's Father, as God the Father, but the Lord who overarchingly orchestrates and who is impersonal. God is personal. Because of what Jesus has done, God the Creator, the Sustainer, the Maker of all things is intimately involved in the lives of people. The lives of individuals that He collects together into a corporate people, the local church, that is part of the eternal people, the church of God in His kingdom. God the Father. Do you know God as the Father, as your Lord? Has He changed your identity such that you are in relationship with Him that it is no longer a judge but a Father, a loving Father who is intimately involved in your life? 1 John talks about this. In 1 John 3, 1-3, it says... See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. You see the identity language in there? The great love that God has loved us. That we should be His children. That we should relate to Him as our Father. Do you know this to be true? 
Is this true in your life? That you see God as a Father of heaven who is created and who sustains you, who is with you. That's what Jesus is saying is true of you. If you are in Christ, if you are in Him, if you have trusted in Him, if He has called you and is at work within your life, this is an essential reality that He says is true of you. That God is your Father and that He has set you apart for His purpose. And that He is with you. So that and for the purpose that others would see your good works, would see your life, and would give glory to, to your Father in heaven. A few essential things here that I want you to see. I want, I want to pull out of this. We've talked about it. You're gonna, like I've already hit it, but we're going to look at it succinctly to carry away from these verses. One, if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. If you're a believer in Him, no matter what you feel like, no matter what you see, if you have trusted in Him and Jesus has saved you, the reality of who you are has changed. It's what He says. You are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's saying that your spiritual reality of who you are is different based on Him, not based on you, based on the grace of God. And so when it doesn't feel like that's true, if that is true of you, that you have trusted in Christ, the decision before you is whether to trust in what He says or not. Whether to trust in His Word and what He says is true and have faith in His promise in His statement of fact and reality, and continue to walk after Him and to depend upon Him and to seek Him for restoration, to seek Him for revelation of whatever may be happening in your life leading you to that place. To trust in what He has done. So believer, if you're a believer in Christ, hear what He says about you. Hear what He says about you being set apart for His purpose. That He is your Father. That He has called you. Be reminded of what He has made you to be in relationship, but also in purpose. That each one of these analogies has an intent. God has called you and set you apart, believer, for the purpose. For His purpose, not for ours. Remember, the light is reflected. We are the moon, we're not the sun, so to speak. That we reflect God. It's not us, Katy Perry style, we're a firework and everybody come see how awesome we are. But what he is saying is that we are reflecting the goodness of God. That our purpose is to represent God. That the world around us would see Him. Would see God. Would see Christ. Would see the grace that He has given us. What He is bringing about in our lives. And that they would be drawn to Him. Not to praise us, not to praise the person, but the Savior, but Christ. God's called intent for His people, God's called intent for His people here for faith family is that we would display Him. That what we do, how we live, we would be effective to the world around us. That the world would see Christ. Would see God, our Father, and give Him glory. Is that what our lives look like? 
Are we salty? That it affects people around us. Perhaps going back to the salt out of the Dead Sea, perhaps there's some impurities. Perhaps there's some inconsistencies within our lives. Perhaps we are not walking in faith. Perhaps the issue has nothing to do with the effectiveness of the gospel, but in our and how we are living today. Perhaps the issue is that we are not walking in faith individually. I don't know where you are. Maybe that's where you are. I want to encourage you to hear him. Hear the word of your Savior, of what he has made you to do, what he has called you to do, and turn to him. Trust in him. Walk in faith and depend upon what he has done in your life and then what he has called you to do. The activity of your life is to walk in faith, to trust in him, to do what he would have you to do so that others would see him. Are your words, what you say and what you do, how you spend time with others around you, seasoned with the salt of the gospel, that you are intent on others seeing Christ in you? Is that your intention? Do you see yourself, believer, called for the purpose of sharing who he is and what he has done? There may be somewhere you struggle. You may, you may struggle in your life in that place of sharing who he is, of telling others about the goodness of God, about telling others about Christ and what he has done in your life. It might be something that, for whatever reason, is a difficulty. Whether it's just natural difficulty or it is a circumstantial thing of busyness and never in the right place or whatever, God has called you for the purpose. He has set you apart that you would speak of him, share of him. Tell others and use opportunities as he would lead you. Start somewhere. Not super complex. Start somewhere. Pray for somebody. Within the Southern Baptist Convention, there is this push uh, for, uh, for, for identifying one person. I think it's called Who's Your One? And identifying one person over the year to pray for and to look for opportunities to share the gospel with. It's a great place to start. Identify somebody. Ask the Lord to direct you to someone who needs to hear about Him, and then begin praying and asking God to open doors. Asking God to reorient schedules that you would be around this person, and that you would be there at a specific point in time, at a specific situation in their life or your life, where you can then... Talk about them. Tell the truth to them. Love them. And point them to Christ. Ask the Lord to appoint somebody. Start praying for someone. Start small. If that's where you're at. If that's the struggle. That's what He's called us to. That's what He's called us to do. To be effective to those around us. As the light of the world. And so also, maybe if you do not know Him, if you do not know Christ, if these essential realities are not the essential reality in your life, they, you've not been changed by the grace of Christ, this, this Savior, as you have heard this morning of what God has done, what has accomplished, it's not to be returned to. Jesus came and He gave His life in your place. 
He died once for all. He will not return to the cross. He will not give His life again because His one death was effective to pay for the sins of the entire world. That anybody, you, me, anyone, at any time, any place in the world, any circumstance, any heap of sin upon them, any reality, whatever it may be, whatever hindrance would be paid for in His singular one sacrifice on the cross. You do not know Him. His call is today. As long as it is today, it's the day of salvation, Hebrews tells us. That His offer for rest, His offer is open, is there to respond to what He has done and to trust in Him. To trust fully in the Lord Jesus. So He is as he is speaking and as he has spoken to his people on this mountain, he's speaking to us and to you and to me. So we'll have a moment here for response, a moment here to respond to the Lord. And I ask you to consider, to think about what he is saying, to think about what he has done. If you are a believer, what he has done in your life, what he has set you apart to do. The spiritual reality of what he has brought about in your life and then what that is to affect in your tomorrow. That you are as salt to affect and purify the world around you. And that as a light you are to cast out and represent him to others. That others are to see him clearly through you. That's his call upon us. That's what he says is true of his followers. That this is what his people do. And so I ask you, think about him. Think about his words, what he says, what he's promising, what he's talking about here. His goodness and his grace. And respond to him how, how you feel him leading. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for... God, I thank you for your word, Lord. I thank you that you tell us what you have done and what you're doing. That, Lord, from the beginning of your scripture, from the beginning of creation, that you have had one plan of redemption to come and to fix the sin and the, the selfishness and the destruction that, Lord, has taken root in this world and that we are continuing to perpetrate in our own lives. That, Lord, as all have fallen short of your glory, all have fallen short of your intended target, Lord, and that our sin, the wages, will end and culminate in death, Lord. That, Lord, your, your plan of redemption has always been that you, Lord Jesus, would come. You would take flesh, you would walk among us, and that you would give your life on our behalf. You would pay our debt. Lord God, thank you so much. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your goodness and your kindness. Lord, I ask your help this morning with anyone sitting here that God, you, Lord, by your spirit would draw us, Lord, to think on you, to consider you, to repent and turn away from sin that we may be entertaining in our lives, that God, your people here would be restored by your grace, that Lord, you would call, call people who do not know you to faith in your son. Lord, you would call them to repent of sin and to turn fully and trust in 
what Jesus has done on their behalf, that that would be effective in their lives and that God, by your spirit, they would be transformed by your grace. To be adopted into your family, to come as your child and to enjoy all the rights and privileges afforded there, that they would be your child for eternity. So, Father, at this time, Lord, would you direct us, would you guide us, and Lord, would you be glorified. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.